Please, please turn also to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. That's our text for this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. We'll read from verse 15 through verse 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. But we go to our God and ask for his blessing on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving God, we thank you, Father, that you indeed are the one who gives your spirit of wisdom and revelation and how much it is that we need it, that we need you to illumine our hearts and our minds. <clears throat> Father, without, without your spirit, the word does not transform. But with your spirit, Father, it bears fruit in our lives. We believe the truth that you have spoken in your word of our sinfulness, of our need for a Savior, of our true righteousness in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would remind us of the gratitude that we ought to have, for you are one who has given us so great a salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray acknowledging our great need. We pray acknowledging your great deliverance. Father, we pray that our Lord Jesus would be the one who is high and lifted up, that he would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Imagine if there were a situation where there was the CEO of one of these Fortune 500 companies and he, contact, he or she contacted you, or maybe the president or, or the king, a ruler of a country, they were to contact you and say, hey, I'm willing to meet with you once a week. Every, every Wednesday at noon, you have an hour with me. I'd like to meet with you. Whatever, your, whatever questions you have for me, I'm willing to talk about it. Would you take him up on that offer? Would you take her up on that offer? Would this be a privilege that if you were aspiring to be some type of Fortune 500 executive, that you would have such a person in your life who could, who could tell you uh, about what you ought to focus on, your development and your growth? What if I said, said it in a different way? What if I said that you have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Not every Wednesday at noon, but... Every waking moment of your life, any time of day, any time of night, you can go to Him, the Lord our God, who reigns supreme in every place. And I could say to you, would you pass up that opportunity with the CEO or the king? And I'd follow up by asking, would you pass up that opportunity with the King of Kings, God Almighty? That you have a place before Him. That He has a willingness to hear your every need. And that how this privilege and this duty are both there. Yet, 
We think about this opportunity so lightly. We pass it up so easily. And here, I want you to understand how important prayer is for our spiritual growth. How important prayer is. Praying for one another. Praying for yourself. Praying for Christ's church. And here, we see the Apostle Paul. Even as he speaks about the greatness of the Gospel. Earlier in chapter 1, that we, we took some time to get through chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, that this is a one giant sentence, 200 something words long, where the Apostle Paul starts talking and he doesn't, he doesn't end with any punctuation because he's talking about the gospel and he can't stop. He's talking about the doctrine of salvation, he's talking about God's. Grace to mankind. God's grace to sinners. Here, he speaks about the mystery. This mystery revealed. And he speaks about how in Jesus Christ, having faith in Christ, he gives thanks for believers. Faith in Christ. Love for all the saints. Now this is not something that comes about naturally. People don't naturally... uh, get together with others who are a completely different social economic class, completely different age category. You know, we talk about it in the world. The world doesn't understand multi-generational friendships, right? Unless someone is your grandfather or your grandmother or your great-grandfather, that, that people don't, they don't even span one generation, typically, unless they're your parents, you typically don't have friends with them. But in the church, this ought to happen. This ought to be happening. Here we, we see how the Apostle Paul acknowledges gratitude to God that there are true believers in Christ. Because he acknowledges this is not the work of man. This is the work of the Almighty God. Only God can do this. Only God can do this. So the truth that we see in this passage Ephesians 1, 15-17 God both gives you new life and grows you in Christ so all praise and prayer belong to Him. God both gives you new life and grows you in Christ so all praise and prayer belong to Him. We'll look at this in two points. The first is gratitude for your new life in Christ. And second, prayer for your growth in Christ. So the first point, gratitude for your new life in Christ. We have this in verses 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Here, The Apostle Paul has a a transition. So earlier, we talked about chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, about how God has given believers every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That there's no shortage of blessing that He gives His people. We think about how He predestined God's people unto holiness, unto blamelessness. There's also the matter of how He has chosen us in Him. That we would be adopted through Jesus Christ. That we would have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That He would reveal to us this mystery. And that you would have this great inheritance in heaven that's kept in heaven for you. Here we see that He... He's basing what he said earlier, chapter uh, verses 3 to 14, and he's saying, for this reason, there in the beginning of verse 15. So he has this great gospel message, this doctrine of salvation. And it's not only great in theory, but it's great in practice. It, it would have been great in theory only if, hey, this is a brilliant plan, God, but when it came time to the, the rubber meeting the road, that it never happened. And at that point, we might say, hey, that's a great plan. It just failed in the execution. But what Paul is acknowledging here, when he gives thanks for these Gentile believers in Ephesus, first-generation Christians, when he says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, what he's saying is, 
it's not merely great in theory. It's great in practice, too. It doesn't fail in execution. God God accomplishes the purpose for which He sent it. That it doesn't just come with words. It comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. It comes with transformed life. The gospel actually works because it's accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit to save sinners, to change lives, and to bear fruit in the lives of God's people. And it's true even for Gentiles. Here in verses 15 and 16, he expresses thanks. Then in verse 17, he prays for knowledge and growth for God's people for a spirit of revelation and of wisdom. And it's not as if you and I haven't received it. He's revealed this mystery. We've accepted the gospel. But he's acknowledging how much more you and I have to go. In verses 18 and 19, he speaks about this hope. That having faith, you must have hope. So this idea of despair in the Christian life, it is, it is not fitting for a Christian to be living a life of despair because faith brings hope. That hope is evidence of faith, genuine faith in your life. That we might say, God, whatever difficulty I'm in, whatever difficulty you're in, because I have faith in Jesus, He gives me hope in my present situation. My focus is not right here now. I'm not staring at my navel I'm able to have my head in the clouds because he's already prepared an inheritance there for all of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ. And it's as as good as there, kept in heaven for you. Here we speak about this new life in Christ. This new life in Christ perhaps can be summed up in these two statements. Faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. It's no minor matter. This idea of believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. As Jesus was speaking with his disciples, he gets to this important, important milestone in Matthew 16. He's asking his disciples, so who do they say the Son of Man is? And and then they're starting to say, well, some people say this, some people say that. Jesus asks, well, what about you, Simon Peter? And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answers him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. All kinds of people can acknowledge that there was this man, Jesus. Remember back in junior high school, I had a, I had a Jewish social studies teacher. And, and some kid, some kid just out of the blue, right, asked uh, so, so who is this Jesus guy? I mean, you, you look at the timeline, right? Uh, it's basis before Christ, and then in the year of our Lord. He must have been one. Who was this guy? Oh, and Jewish social studies teacher says, "Oh, his name was uh, Joshua Ben Joseph. He was just a man." And even as as a seventh grader, oh come on, she's got that wrong. <laughs> just a man, but the entire timeline is centered on him and his life. He wasn't just a man. See, all kinds of people says. There really was a man. And they would even make up stories. Oh yeah, some Jewish woman and some Roman soldier, uh, some illegitimate birth, and that's this man. Well, no. All kinds of lies and falsehoods can be made up about him. But if Jesus is anything, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, then he must be no less than the Son of God. He must, he must be no less than God himself. That there is an insult if we assign to him that he's, he's merely a great teacher, great moral teacher. No, because if he is God, if he wasn't God, and he taught the things that he taught, he'd be crazy. This is no minor thing that sinners would confess Jesus Christ as their hope of salvation. It's not merely, oh, yeah, there really was a man, Jesus who died on the cross. The question of, well, wait a minute, but did he die on the cross for sinners? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I, I think there, there, there must have been some man who died on the cross. The history books all seem to indicate that. Even the Bible talks about it.
But the question becomes personal. Did Jesus die on the cross for sinners? Did He die on the cross for you? Did He cry on the cross for you? Not, not just for sinners. Did He die for your sake? Oh, you, you mean it, it's, it's personal? Is it, oh yes, it has to be personal. Do you believe that He saved sinners? Oh yeah, I believe He can save sinners. No, but do you believe that He saves you from your sins? Was His death on the cross sufficient to pay for your sins? And not only your sins, but the sins for all the people all over the world who are trusting in His name. And here, this is what we mean when we say that faith is that which accepts Jesus Christ as He is offered to us in the Gospel. It's not some made-up Jesus. It's not some Jesus of your own creation. It's Jesus as He is offered to us in the Bible. We think about this faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus. If we're trusting that Jesus is our Savior, that He's the one who saves us from our sins, what we're admitting is, I have no righteousness of my own. Jesus... I have no ability to wash my own sins away. No matter how much water, no matter how much soap, uh, the harshest of bleach, whatever chemicals, it can't wash my sin away. It's only the work of the Holy Spirit. It's only by Christ's perfect work on the cross that He died in the place of sinners. That the perfect life that Jesus lived, He lived on our behalf. And that you are commanded by God to embrace those promises by faith. Here... This faith doesn't stop there. This faith says, wait a minute. This Jesus who saved me now owns my life. I belong to Him. So how I live my life should be subject to my Savior, who is also my Lord. So when the Lord Jesus says, hey, come out of the darkness. Step into my marvelous light. That you and I would be those who say, amen. I'm going to leave my old life behind. One of these matters is the matter of love. Love toward all the saints. Here, we have to clarify some things. That saints, they're not a uh, special category of, of uh, super spiritual Christians that the church determines. No, no. Saints is every Christian and it's determined by God, not man. You understand that everyone who is trusting in Jesus Christ is a saint, a holy one. Literally means holy one. Set apart by God, not set apart by the church. Here, this love for all the saints. It's not, hey, God saves us. And suddenly we say, hey, what should we do? Well, we ought to make up this thing called love. No such thing. This love is what you and I have witnessed on the cross, when God sent His Son. This is, love is a transforming love. We read earlier in Psalm 116. Verse 1, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because He inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. Here, the, the psalmist is saying that he loves God because he cried out to God for mercy and God was the one who heard and answered his prayers. In Romans chapter 2, we're told that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. How is it, Christian, that you know love? You know love because God sent His Son to die on behalf of sinners. We wouldn't know love otherwise, would we? I mean, maybe we could we'd say, hey, we've been loved by our parents, we've been loved by family and friends. These are all good things, but this true meaning, this true proof, this true definition of love comes from God. Turn, turn with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. First Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. We'll read this together. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It seems as if here, what I'm hearing is that love must encompass humility. Right? It says here, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant. So love must at least be uh, humility. Right? The, the, the proud, proud people are not patient, they're impatient. But love is patient. Proud people aren't kind, but we're called to kindness. We think about how this love is transforming. So, so we think about this definition of love, that uh, love is not a feeling, right? It's not, a, it's not just a feeling we have for people. Love is expressed through actions. Love is expressed in commitment. That God manifests this love to us and that He makes us exceedingly great, great promises. He makes us covenants, right? Where, where you think about some of the promises that He made. Genesis 15 that uh, God made promises to, to Abraham. And then he, he had him set up these animals, uh, big animals that he cut in half, right? Bulls, goats was it. And then he had smaller animals, birds, that he just put two dead ones on the side, right? But there was a path there, right? And, and here God made Abraham promises. And what we ought to understand from that is, hey, these animals that were cut in half, God is saying, hey, if I don't fulfill my promise to you, you can go ahead and cut me in half, right? That's what he's saying. Hey, may there be judgment upon me if I don't fulfill my promise to you, Abraham. This is what love is about. God shows us that love. He makes us exceedingly great promises, and then he fulfills those promises. When we think about this love, it's a transforming love. Philippians 2 Philippians 2, we think about this transforming love that God has shown to His people. Philippians 2, Philippians 2, starting from verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See here, the Apostle Paul speaks about this. Any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection in sympathy. He's saying, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Christ loves you. There's fellowship in the Spirit. And he's saying, this ought to be extended to others. If, if you've been affected by this love, if you've been transformed by this love, it will be manifested in your life. And here, what, what Paul is saying is, stop thinking only about yourself. Stop thinking only about your own goals and your own needs. Start thinking about the needs of the person next to you. It's difficult at times for us <clears throat> to think beyond our own noses. We think, oh, this is what I want. This is, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to accomplish. This is, this is what I want. But how often are we asking, Lord, what is it that you want? How can your name be glorified? Or perhaps, if we bring it down a notch, thinking past our own noses of our own needs, we stop and think, what about the person sitting next to me in the chair? What about the person who comes from a different continent than me, who is two or three generations older or younger than me in the church? How, how might... I show love to that person and affection and care and concern. This is what love is. It crosses barriers. And when you think about crossing barriers, is that not what Jesus did? He crossed all kinds of barriers to come to us with the good news of the gospel. This is a transforming love. I think about what faith would look like without love. So we talk about this three. There's faith, hope, and love. 
we're told the greatest of these is love. Now, now if you if you have these, because this this is exactly what this chapter talks about, or it's referenced also in 1 Corinthians 13. But faith without love is ugly, and love without faith is is sentimentalism of some sort. So you think about faith without love. You want a picture of that? The New Testament talks about it. The Old Testament talks about it in Judaism. Judaism outside of Christ. You have a good picture of what faith uh, without love is, and, and ultimately it's not faith. Right? That if if faith separated from love, you have knowledge puffing up, not building up. Do you remember that man that Jesus healed in the book of John? He he was blind. And he was healed. And and the Jewish leaders were flabbergasted. They didn't want to come to the conclusion that Jesus healed a blind man such that he who was born blind could see. And, and what's, what sticks out in all of it is that these Jewish leaders were not rejoicing with this man who could not see and was given sight. They, they were asking him, hey, wait a minute. Talk to his parents, hey, was he, was he really born blind? He was. And they, they didn't want to come to that conclusion. But they could not rejoice with him. But instead, at the end of the conversation, we put you out of the synagogue. You're done. You're out. Because they, they weren't willing to speak against this man. And, and they were asking the question, you're one of his disciples. And he says, hey, I, I'm answering your question. You asked me, how, how did I receive sight? This man spit on the ground, he made mud, put it in my eyes, and now I see. It's going to be ugly religion. Knowledge that puffs up. Love builds up. We think about the mature. There was once a time in my life, how sad it was, that I thought the most godly person was the one who knew the most. Over time, I came to understand, knowledge is not maturity. Knowledge without love is worthless. Knowledge without love is pride. Knowledge without love tears down. But knowledge united with love, because that is what Jesus desires for us, it will build up. Oh, so you're telling me you know that that person is wrong. He has wrong beliefs. But what are you going to do with that? Is Are you going to change them by arguing with them? I realized through many a harsh conversation, worthless conversation, that that, what, that that wasn't what God has called me to. You realize the difficult road is how do you pray for that person? How do you love that person and desire their change? Really, we can't do anything to change that person. But arguing with them certainly is not going to do it. When we look at love without faith... <clears throat> Love without faith. This is often the path when you look at the history of the church for, for the church to say, you know what? We're going to focus on this love. We're going to focus on doing good. And there ought to be diaconal ministry. Churches in the past have, have started hospitals, uh, charitable organizations. These are all great things. But it should never have been at the cost of bearing witness of the good news of the gospel and discipling people. Because this is what God has called the church to. But what happens is then you have love without faith. Well, the end result is you have something that's no longer love. or It's no longer love because the focus is no longer on Jesus. The focus is on man. This is what humanism is. This is what this idea of everything revolves around man. What we value is good. What we define as good is good. Uh, you have autonomy, which means self-rule. No longer the rule by God's, God's word, but you have the rule by our own desires. And you see how quickly things uh, such as that can change. When you look at, hey, is it, is it loving to my neighbor... If, uh, if we allow them to live and eat without working. Well, let's just bill it to the government. It's okay. Everyone, we can all just eat without working. Well, that's not what the Lord says. He who does not work shall not eat. That's a principle of love. 
You think about how, hey Frank, how can you be so hateful to tell that person that they're living in sin? Well, if you're if you were living a life that will lead to destruction and judgment, and and uh, your life will be cut short, I mean, wouldn't you want someone to tell you that you're on the wrong path? Is isn't that actually loving to do that? Here, we acknowledge that love and faith must go hand in hand. Cannot coexist without the other. We think also about what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Here, he's acknowledging, the Apostle Paul is acknowledging, salvation is a work of God. It's not a work of man. Notice here, the Apostle Paul doesn't thank the Ephesians. Hey, I, I, I thank you that you're in Christ. No, he, he says that in prayer, remembering you in my prayer, so he's thanking God for the Ephesians who are Christians. So this whole thought is, but by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is 1 Corinthians 1.30. It's acknowledgement that salvation is not merely a matter of inculcation. What I mean by that is you have a child, right? And you, you want them to become a Christian. You want them to have good values. You want them to be a productive person in society. And the world thinks, well, this is the same principle as making foie gras. Right? So you think about uh, how you make this, this duck or this goose liver, how, they, how this duck can get like a two or three pound liver, right? That big, and, and it's, it's by stuffing it full. I think the principle is called gavage. It's French principle. You force, force feed these ducks, and essentially what, what they're getting is they're getting a fatty liver disease, right? Their, their, their livers start to grow, and people eat that, right? And you think, oh, well, if we have these children, and we just force feed them all of these things throughout their lives, that they're eventually going to become Christians. And the answer is no, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. It requires the work of our God. In fact, we're told to, to give godly example. We're told to instruct. We're told to pray for them. We're told to trust in the Lord. God is the one who does the mighty work from inside. So ultimately, salvation is a work of God. It's not a work of man. New life is needed. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But it's the Spirit who gives birth to Spirit. The Holy Spirit does. And because of that here, there's gratitude towards God. Jesus told this story. Was it to Simon Peter? He talks about this woman, a sinful woman who was forgiven. And she washes Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes, wipes it with her hair. And then Jesus tells Simon Peter the story about this man, or these two men, a master who forgives, uh, a man who's forgiven, was it 50? $50 versus $500, whatever the units were. And he says, who do you think would love more? I said, well, I suppose the one who has forgiven much. So also, in your life and in mine, he who is forgiven much loves much. But he who is forgiven loves little. And it has everything to do with a greater understanding of how big of a sinner you are. When you're first saved, you come to the point where you realize you're a sinner perhaps even a bad sinner. It's only after God grants you greater understanding about yourself, His greater holiness, that you come to understand how great of a sinner you really are. It's not as if Christ's work was less in your life before. No, no, He, he paid the price in full, up front. It's merely what you and I come to realize. We come to realize how much you and I have been forgiven. And that the result then is a life of gratitude to our God. God, you paid a huge debt. We're told you've been bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. In Psalm 116, we have this principle, this life of gratitude being expressed. Verse, starting from verse 12, What shall I render to the Lord? 
for all His benefits to me. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. Here, he asks the question, what shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? It's a life of gratitude, a life of worship, a a life of love, a, a life of humble service. In our culture, it's so common to see people who have a sense of entitlement. They forget who they are. And in Christianity, we ought to come before our God, never forgetting who He is, the Almighty God, and always remembering who we are, sinners saved by His grace. May you and I always be thankful. Children, this is, this is the, the question that we often ask. If we only gave thanks, or if we only got to keep the things for which we gave thanks, how much would we really have in life? I'll tell you, I, I would lose most everything in my life. And this is a reminder to, my, to, uh, to all of us how much it is that we ought to give thanks. You realize that God has a very simple way of reminding us about gratitude is for all the things that he's given us the things that we never notice that one thing he just takes it out and then we immediately notice does that ever happen to you? you think about a simple matter of health oh our health we take for granted until some little thing comes up and suddenly wow I've gone years I've gone decades in my life never once giving thanks for the health that He's given me until that one thing pops up and suddenly, wow, I've never thanked the Lord for that at all. That I could serve Him with my strength. Oh, I've never thought about how there's peace in relationships. There's peace in the church. I've never thought about how, you know, hey, uh, and, and the list goes on and on. I realize God, in His mercy, he, he takes out that one little piece of the puzzle. That one little block. And He helps us to see how it is we forget to thank Him and that we ought to do so all the more. So this is the first point. Gratitude for your new life in Christ. We have also the second point, prayer for your growth in Christ in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Here, it's a humble reminder to you and to me, this verse, that you and I have not yet arrived. We're far from perfect. Has it ever happened in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your household, that someone raises a matter, hey, notice that you do this, and it's not good, whatever it might be. And do you immediately get defensive? Do you, do you start to fight and start to formulate while the person's talking, right? You're not actually listening. You're formulating arguments for why he or she is wrong in what she pointed out. What you're, what you're saying when you do that is, I've already arrived. I have nowhere else to go. I've made it to the top. Instead, we ought to be those who are humble enough to realize God saves sinners. But He hasn't he hasn't washed all of our sins away from us in our lives. right? He, he's changing us. He's still changing us. We have the need to be sanctified. Spiritual birth, then, is far from maturity. That confessing Jesus Christ is, is publicly confessing that you are a sinner. I, I'm a sinner in need of God's mercy, and I've found that true mercy in Jesus Christ. So then, if someone were to raise with you, hey, I've noticed this area of your life, there ought not to be an argument. There ought to be, yes, I'm a sinner. So that, that's, that's the founding principle, and I need to grow. So there ought not to be the need for argumentation about that, in your life or in mine. The acknowledgement is that there is faith in Jesus Christ, yes, and there is love for the saints, that if you and I are going to be in Christ... And we have love for God, we have love for Jesus Christ, it cannot exist unless there is love 
for the body of Christ, which is the church. So often we ask, what's good for us? What's good for my family? We think we need to think, what's good for the church? How is this going to affect the body of Christ? Here Paul mentions the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, I, I thought that, that God has revealed us to this us the mystery, that we now know the mystery in Jesus Christ. That, that, that was earlier in chapter 1. And what well, we ought to understand, but you need a greater measure of it. It's not done. Wisdom is needed. And wisdom we can sum up simply as knowing how God's word relates and applies to everyday life. People go through difficulties. People go through difficulties. And you know, one of the challenges that I face in this chaplain ministry is uh, the, there's people who have deaths, right? So someone in their family dies. And uh, it's a very small slice of, of people who would ask for a chaplain, but the police officer shows up. There's some kind of a death, however horrific. And they ask, well, would you like a chaplain? Well, typically they're religious. They would call their own minister or whatever uh, religious leader they have. And if they're not, they would say no. But then some of them just say yes. And you show up there and you have to come up with something to say. And this is where wisdom is necessary. How the Word of God shows us our need and how the Word of God can encourage. There's also the matter of revelation that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. Understanding for you and for me how your life is oriented around Christ. Everything. Everything in your life. Jesus has jurisdiction over it. He's a rightful owner of it. He's, he's, he can step in there and say, okay, this is not what it needs to be. This has to straighten up. Notice how God uses understanding for your growth. God uses understanding for your growth. He uses the word. He uses the basis of truth. He uses your understanding. What I mean by that is, Satan uses, Satan uses other means. He uses our senses. He uses our emotions. So something gets under your skin and suddenly you're hot with anger. And you'd like to step in there and say, hey, that's righteous indignation, right? You know, emotions generally, unrestrained, that's not the work of God. God uses our understanding. In in Proverbs 19.2, we're told, Desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. So here, we have an understanding that when God works in us to mature us, He's going to use something regarding our understanding. And then He develops it within our hearts that we might have a longing and a love for it. Jesus speaks about how to the, to the Pharisees, John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That we ought to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is an understanding, a greater understanding of who Christ is. This means, for you and for me, having a greater understanding of how our true identity is found in Him, found in Jesus Christ. So, it's not so much, hey, if you're if your identity is found in the quality of work that you do, or perhaps in your grade point average, then obviously it makes sense that you'd go argue with your professors after every class about the grades that you get. Hey, how dare you give me an A-? minus? should be getting an A+. But if your identity is in Christ, it completely changes things, doesn't it? Here, 
We continue. We think about how God works. Knowing this wisdom and understanding, you have some understanding about how God works in our lives. Young men, you want to have that that burly chest and that massive bicep, right? Isn't that nice? Well, are you are you gonna get that by by sitting in your lazy boy and playing video games? You're not gonna get it like that. It doesn't happen like that. Right? Hey, I'm just gonna take this pill and suddenly, you know, my, my arm's gonna be like the size of you know Arnold Schwarzenegger's arm. No, it doesn't happen like that. Well, so also you realize it doesn't happen like that for your growth in the Christian life. It doesn't happen. In 70 degree weather, sitting on that lazy boy recliner watching TV. You have to understand how God works. He's going to work through difficulty. If He's going to grow you, it's going to be painful. We talk about shame. People don't like to be shamed, especially fat shamed. I was fat shamed at one point. No one likes being fat shamed. But you realize that. Humility is needed. You could say there's, there's a difference between shame and, and, and humility. Well, oftentimes God uses shame so that we might become humble. And you realize how God works. You look at God's promise to the church, God's command to the church to bring the gospel to the ends of the world. And it was great. They had fellowship there in Jerusalem. Hey, everything's great. He knew they weren't going to leave. He sends persecution and out they go. Right? They, they go to the other lands. Otherwise, hey, why, why would we leave? And think also, in your own life, do you ever have situations where people just annoy you? You meet people, they do something, and you know, they annoy you. Well, you realize that that's, that's part of God using a bad example to point out something in your own life. There's a reason why it annoys you. It annoys you because you're guilty of it. Most likely. I mean, am I, am I being honest here? Are you being honest here? But they, you meet someone, there's something they do, it annoys you, it's because you do it yourself. And that's one of these matters of wisdom. God shows you your need for change by allowing you to see it in others and then noticing it for yourself. And you think about the matter about how Satan works. How Satan works. That comes wisdom. This is how Satan works. He desires that we would have this sense of entitlement. I, I, I deserve this, God. You owe it to me. And then the word of God comes in. Hey, you know, we're only unworthy servants doing our duty. Right? What do we have that we did not receive? Right? All of this has been given by God in His kindness, His mercy, His grace. Here, think about the matter of prayer. This matter of prayer... That we have a hearing with the Almighty. We want a hearing with someone in power. We, have, we want to have a friend in high places. In Christ you have the Almighty God. There's no higher person. Everyone answers to Him. He answers absolutely nobody. And that is what we need. And how often are you and I making use of this privilege? I'm going to be straight with you. The need for prayer. You do it two ways. You can start praying. Or more likely, God will use crises in your life to bring you to your knees. But when you look at that, you might say, Oh, how painful those crises were. But you know what? I needed it. Because it brought me to prayer. Brought me to see my complete dependence upon God. How many use this privilege wisely of going to God in prayer often? There's also the duty of intercessory prayer. This just means praying for other people. I think about the pastoral ministry. One of the greatest joys is being able to pray with people. But I want you to understand, this is not a privilege that I keep for myself. I share it with all of you. Right? You want to go pray with someone? Go do it. You want to pray for someone privately? Go do it. You want to pray for someone in the presence one-on-one or one-on-two or whatever? Go do it, right? This is, this is something that all believers ought to be doing. We ought to enjoy it. We ought to desire it. You think about intercessory prayer in the life, uh, or mentions in the Bible. Think about Job. The end of the book of Job. Job 42. 
This is after God speaks. Job is humbled. Now he's listening. And then God says to his three friends, Hey, you guys have spoken wrongly about me. You haven't spoken correctly as my servant Job has. And then he says, hey, you're going to offer up these sacrifices, and then Job will pray for you that you might be healed. And that you might be forgiven. And that's what happened. And you look at the life of the Apostle Paul. Here, he appeals to Caesar. Oh, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. So, Acts 28, he hops on a ship. The ship... uh, has trouble and and they're washed up on this island of Malta. And then on this island there showed kindness from this man Publius and we're told that his father was lying sick. And then Paul went to see him and after he had prayed he laid his hands on him and healed him. And here, here, here was this witness that Paul had. Hey, you're sick? Your father's sick? Well, I'm going to go meet with him and pray for him. And he was healed. And so here you realize that the discipline of prayer is going to come with dire necessity in your life. It's not going to come with comfort and with ease. But you ought to be willing to accept that because you realize it won't happen any other way. The need comes. You go to prayer. God provides. Don't stop there. Keep praying. Right? Realize that you have to keep praying and that God in His wisdom continues to bring difficulty so that you and I might see our complete dependence on Him. I close with this passage of Scripture that I think relates so well uh, to this sermon. Ephesians 3, 14-19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here, this is the Apostle Paul saying that he bows his knee, that he goes to God in prayer, that you might know the love of Christ, which is beyond knowledge. Here we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank You, Father, that You...